turn there. If you're visiting with us, we go through the books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So we've been in the last several months in the book of Daniel. We're in the 11th chapter. We're going to start at verse 1. We have a few more weeks in the book of Daniel, some incredible detailed prophecy that is given to us as we go through this last section of the book of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 11, we'll start reading at verse 1, but Father, we do come, and we ask that as we've now opened up our Bibles, we have the privilege of studying the written word of God. We know that Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We know that this is inspired, God-breathed, put to the page, and given to us for our benefit and for our blessing. I pray that we would be teachable. I pray that we would remember that we need to turn ringers off our phones. Um, and we, we want to be, um, for the next few moments, just um, ready to receive your word. And as we look at all this historical background to what we're going to be reading, there's a reason why it's recorded. And we know that it's for our profit, for our benefit, and I pray that we would be people that are teachable right now, desiring to just uh, not only look at the implication here, but, Lord, to make application for our lives as well. So we thank you that we're here. We give you this time the study of the Word of God, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the background of this vision, of course, we saw last week as we uh, went through chapter 10, Daniel was by the river Tigris. Now, Tigris is where Babylon was. And we know that it's in the modern-day country of Iraq. And he had been praying and fasting for three weeks. As Daniel is seeking the Lord, he receives this vision. It's the last one that we will look at in the book of Daniel. Four visions that we have seen. Chapter 7, he saw the, the four great beasts that came out of the sea. Chapter 8, he saw the, the vision that pertained to the Medo-Persian Empire uh, and Alexander the Great. And we looked at that very carefully, uh, the ram and the goat. Chapter 9 is the angel Gabriel came to Daniel and said, Daniel, I come to give you understanding about the 70 weeks that pertain to your people and to your holy city. And then now the fourth and final vision that actually the prelude was last week as it's coming at a time that the 70 years of captivity are over. And Daniel, as he's at the river there, he has a vision of the glorious man, which perhaps is the Lord himself. And Daniel was weakened by the angel that touched him, as we read last week. And the angel said, Daniel, I, I was dispatched. I, I came to you on the very first day that you began to pray, but I was held up. And Daniel gives us some interesting insights to the spiritual realm around us. He said, there is the prince of Persia, this demonic being that was holding me up, and Michael the archangel had to come and help me. So we talked about that insight to, about spiritual warfare that does take place in our lives, and we know that it's real. The world laughs about it, but we know that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and power and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. And there is a demonic realm out there. There's a spiritual realm out there. So you might want to listen to that teaching as we talked about those things. But here in chapter 10, the angel said to Daniel that I've come to make you understand what will happen in the latter days. And even though Daniel was overwhelmed by the vision by the angel, he is instructed to be strong and remember that you're beloved of God. 
And in the day in which we are living in, as we look around us and, and we're troubled by the things that we read about and see and the things that are taking place in our community, in our state, in our nation, around the world, we can become troubled by it. But I want you to remember this, that it's all headed somewhere. It's going to culminate into a glorious future for you and I as believers. And I want you to also remember that you are beloved of God, that he loves you and that he cares for you and that he desires to continue to strengthen you and, and to bring wisdom to you in the days in which we are living in. So here, Daniel chapter 11, as we move in and now get details of this vision, is going to be the account of the two empires that would come out of the Grecian Empire. Now keep in mind that after the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, Alexander the Great, as most of you know, and we've discussed in our previous studies, that, that he took over the known world. He conquered the known world. After his death, his empire was passed on to four generals that, that took over. And Daniel chapter 11 here, we're going to see, is going to focus on the Ptolemy family in the south, that is, in that area of Egypt, and the Seleucid family in the north, in that area which is today Syria. And these two empires we're going to see that are going to be at war with each other. And right in the middle between them, of course, is Israel. The first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11 will tell us in details prophecy of the time that Daniel is writing this vision. Again, about 536 B.C., the third year of Cyrus the king, as we read in chapter 10, verse 1. And Daniel is going to write about what is ahead to about 164 B.C. Uh, to the time of the little horn of Daniel chapter 8, when Antiochus Epiphany comes on the scene. So it is a time frame of over 300 years. And it is very detailed, particularly the account of this warring that goes back and forth, as we will see beginning in verse 5, up through verse 21, and, and um, actually up uh, through uh, some of the verses after that. Very detailed account of this warring that goes on between the Ptolemy family and the Seleucid family. Again, Israel is caught right in the middle of it. And it is prophecy detailed that is found nowhere else in Scripture. Now, to Daniel, keep in mind this. He's writing in about 536 B.C. It is all yet future. It is all prophecy. To us now, we can look back at the first 35 verses of this chapter, and we can say that it's history, that it, it, it was fulfilled to the letter. It came to pass exactly as Daniel writes here. Matter of fact, scholars will tell us that in chapter 11 here, there's 135 prophecies. And because we look back, when we get to verse 36, to the end of the chapter into chapter 12, that is all yet future. But we can look back on much of this, what we're going to cover today, and we can see that it came to pass. Daniel writing, it was yet future, near fulfillment. And because it was fulfilled, there are the higher critics that will come along and they will say that Daniel could not have written this in the 6th century B.C. And this chapter gives the higher critics or the skeptics that don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture a huge, huge headache. Jesus said that Daniel was a prophet. And so all this is written that was forward going on from the time of Daniel's writing it. We're going to read about what has already been fulfilled as we begin to see in verse 1 of chapter 11. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, 
even, I stood up to confirm and to strengthen him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up against the realm of Greece. So Daniel, taken into captivity, 605 B.C., is a young teenager. Babylon falls to the Medo-Persian Empire, Daniel chapter 5, in 539 B.C. Here it is, the 70 years of captivity are over. The third year of Cyrus the king, as he is receiving this vision, Daniel is told that three more kings are going to arise after Cyrus. And the fourth one shall be richer than they all. And that's exactly what happened here. Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, he would rule from about 529 to 522 B.C. And then Pseudo-Smyrdas, he ruled for a couple years after him. Then after that king came Darius the Great, and he ruled from 521 to 486 B.C. He is mentioned in Ezra chapter 5 and 6. So don't be confused with Daniel chapter 6, Darius, that is mentioned then. Because sometimes people will read Ezra chapter 5 and 6 and say, well, Darius is mentioned at that time much later. So it's a different Darius, Darius the Great. His son, Xerxes I, also known as Ahasuerus, I'll get it out, from 485 to 465 B.C., he's mentioned in the book of Ezra in chapter 4, verse 6. Now, Xerxes, the fourth king, was the richest. He had unbelievable wealth, and what he did is he amassed this large army, two million fighting soldiers on on the battlefield. That was unheard of in ancient times. And he took his huge army, and he would just begin to conquer more territory, more land with that huge army. He caused a lot of international strife. Well, he ended up going up against Greece. And as he did, it became a very bloody war. There was a lot of men that he lost, um, and Greece lost a lot of lives too as well. Um, And so there was huge losses on both sides. And for the next 150 years, the Greeks were waiting for revenge. They were incensed that the Persians would come up to that area of Greece and attempt to annihilate them and conquer them. So 150 years later, a king did come on the scene, we read about in verse 3. And then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he had arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. So this mighty king, of course, was Alexander the Great. He was the goat that we looked at in that vision of chapter 8. And he conquered the known world from Greece to India in about 15 years. He began his military excursions at the age of 18. He never lost a battle. He became the king of Greece at the age of 20. By the time he was 33, he had conquered the known world. And, of course, perhaps you might remember from your high school history class that the great cry of Alexander was, are there no more worlds for me to conquer? Well, what happened is he began fighting with his generals. There was turmoil. And, and what happened at that time as well is Alexander ended up dying. And one of the accounts was is that he began to drink. And he was, you know, drinking heavily one night. He walked back to his tent in the soaking rain as the rain was 
uh, pouring down on him. He fell asleep in his, his clothes that were all wet, and he ended up getting pneumonia, and he died. When he died, the empire would be divided up into four parts. Uh, the four notable horns of chapter 8 given to four of his generals. And that process took longer than Alexander conquering the known world. But eventually, it would be divided up into four parts. And, and by the way, as we compare it, there's con- comparison, and, and it correlates with what chapter 8 tells us. Keep in mind this, that prophecy will not contradict itself. That as we take prophecy, that there's a harmonious message that is there telling us about the things that are going to take place in the latter days. And the reason that I tell you that is because I've heard teachings on prophecy, and it's like, what are you talking about? Just weird interpretations that contradict what the whole of Scripture has to say about the prophetic scenario. But also keep in mind that, that the Word of God is not going to contradict itself, um, that it's consistent. And as we look at this, these four generals, again being mentioned in Daniel chapter 8, when they took over the empire, the, the, the Grecian empire never had the power or the strength that it had that was under Alexander for that short time, that he had conquered the known world. But we're going to see that as we continue reading here, that there was all kinds of problems. There was fighting. There was no united nation to, to help them or make things worse. Um, but um, he, there was, I don't know if you heard about the tragedy in the United Nation just this week. There was an accident in the kitchen. It had great, you know, diplomatic repercussions. Somebody dropped a platter, and, and China was broken, and Turkey was fallen, and Greece was spilled all over the place. Uh, I sorry, I couldn't resist. First, some those of you who may be, you know, visiting, I tell one joke a year, so that's that's the the one. What is interesting is if you go to Israel with us, uh, we st- stand there on Mount Scopus when we come into to Israel and overlooks the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives and the hills of, of Jerusalem. And one of those mountains is called the, the Mountain of Evil Council. And I was asking the tour leader about that, and he said, well, that's where we believe that there is evil counsel, like Absalom, that received evil counsel concerning his dad, David, of course, Absalom you tried to usurp the throne from David and, and other references in the scripture. So they call that mountain the mountain of evil counsel. And I said, there's a, there's a building up there, a big building up there. What's that building? He said, oh, that's the United Nations. So, you know, God kind of has a sense of humor, I guess. I don't know. He puts it up there on the, the mountain of evil counsel. But the four kings that would rule after Alexander the Great was Lysimachus in Asia, Asia Minor. That's at that area of Turkey today. Cassander in Greece. Uh, Ptolemy in Egypt. And Seleucus in the area of Syria. Now, as we go through verses 5 through 35, um, the vision is going to focus on Ptolemy and Seleucus, those two dynasties, because it affects Israel. So let's begin to look at that. And also, as we go through this, you're really going to see that it's, it's going to actually read like a soap opera. All this fighting, warring, things that are taking place. You'll see what I mean as we continue in the chapter, verse 5. 
And also the king in the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes. And he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So the king of the south is, is again, Ptolemy. The first Ptolemy that was one of Alexander's generals. He is strong and he actually helps Seleucus the first fight this war in the area of Babylon. And after the king of the north, which is the Seleucian family, becomes very strong, he began to rule over a larger area than Ptolemy. So time passes here, and then in verse 6, and at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority. Neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. So what happens is, is that the, the king of, 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 of the Ptolemy family, he says, listen, let's join forces. Let's not fight anymore. Uh, the new Ptolemy, the second one actually in the south, gives his daughter Berenice to the king of the north. That is the new Antiochus. It's Antiochus II or Antiochus Theos. Uh, he's the grandson of the first Seleucus king. And he says, let's join forces. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my daughter, the king of, of, of uh, the Ptolemy um, of, of that area of Egypt. I'm going to give you my daughter, marry her, and we'll be one big happy family. And Antiochus is up in Syria is, is getting this pressure to do this. Let's do this military alliance. Um, we'll be one big happy family like Alexander would want it to be. The problem was this, that Antiochus in Syria, he was already married. And he was married to a woman named Laodicea. Now that may sound familiar to you because in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelations chapters 2 and 3, the seventh letter that is written was to the church of what? The Laodiceans, the lukewarm church. So here is Laodicea, and the king, you know, Ptolemy II, he's going, get rid of your wife. Tell her to, to leave the palace. You marry, you know, Berenice, my daughter. That will unite us. And Antioch gives in to the pressure. He says, okay. So he removes his wife, sends her packing. He takes Berenice. So what happens shortly after the marriage is Ptolemy II in, in Egypt, he dies. And Antiochus in Syria says, I want my old wife back. I want Laodicea back. So he calls his old wife to come back into the palace. The first day that she comes back, the first day that she's with her, her old husband that sent her packing, she kills him, stabs him in the back. Antiochus goes down. She finds Berenice and kills her and their son that they had together. So the Ptolemy family there in Egypt hears about what happens, and they're upset. They're really ticked off, which leads now to verse 7. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king in the north, and deal with them and prevail. So Ptolemy's son, which is the third ruler, Ptolemy the, the third at this time, this is Berenice's brother. He says, you guys up north there, you killed my sister. What's going on? This is a plot. We can't let this go. 
So Ptolemy III comes to avenge the death of his sister Berenice. And what he does is he takes his army, he marches up north. Now remember, Israel's right in the middle of this family feud. And he does in the Syrians. And he kills Antiochus' wife, uh, the, who killed everyone else, the lay of the sea, uh, and killed you know, his um, you know, sister Berenice. He ends up coming back to Egypt. While he was there, it says he takes many of the spoils. And what had happened historically is Cambyses had taken a bunch of idols from Egypt, taken them up to Syria. They had been there for many years, like 2,500 idols. So here he, he brings the, those Egyptian gods' idols back to Egypt, and he rescues them, which is ridiculous, right? I mean, it's not much of a god if you've got to rescue your god. But keep in mind that God rescues you and me because he's the true and the living God. Listen, I just want to add this while we're at this point in our study. That the message that the Lord was given to the children of Israel is why are you worshiping these idols? They can't help you. They can't help you. You can fashion an idol with wood, with, with metal, or with stone, and it can have ears, it has eyes, it has a mouth, but it can't hear, it can't see, it can't speak. You have to tote it around. There's not one example in the Old Testament where those idols helped the children of Israel. And the Lord came along and was reminding them of that. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt, out of the world. I'm the one that gave you the land. I'm the one that gave you inheritance. I'm the creator. I'm the true and the living God. And we need to remember that. Because there can be, just as there was 2,500 idols that came back from Syria to Egypt and got rescued, if you would, that there can be a lot of idols that can come into our lives. Listen, it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy things. And it doesn't mean that that we can't have things in our life, but don't let those things become a priority over your passion and your worship and your devotion to the Lord. And that can begin to happen if we get our focus off the Lord. Listen, he loves you. And he brought you out of Egypt. And he did not bring you out of Egypt so you can go back to those false idols and trust in those things over trusting the Lord. So here's this this avenging, you know, uh, the death of his sister, Ptolemy III. And then in verse 9 we read, And also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom, and the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, and then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. So the new king of the Solution family tries to invade Egypt, but to no prevail. The new solution king was Laodicea's son, who she had, you know, with, um, you know, uh, made king after she had killed uh, dad. And he comes back humiliated. He, he dies from falling off a horse. He is succeeded by his son. He's murdered in Asia Minor by some conspirators. We continue reading verse 11. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him. And the king of the north who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. And when he was taken away, the multitude, his heart will be lifted up. And he will be cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. So the story continues. The fighting rages on. Israel stuck in the middle as the battle rages on. And the king of Syria at this time, Antiochus the Great, well, he wasn't so great. 
Ptolemy IV defeats his army. Uh, Antiochus, you know, fled to the de desert. And verse 13 tells us here that the king in the north will return and muster the multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. And then verse 15 tells us, so the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. So Antiochus the Great, he's enraged because he was defeated. He lost a lot of his army, according to Jerome the historian. He says, I'm tired of the Ptolemies. So Antiochus goes up north to the area of Greece, north of Syria, and he says to Philip V, hey, come in and help us fight against, you know, Egypt, against the Ptolemies. Let's give them uh, a whipping. So Philip V says, yeah, I like a good war. So he joined forces with the Syrians. They defeated the Ptolemies. They defeated Egypt. And we read in verse 16, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. At this time, Antiochus the Great or the Third gained control of Israel. In verse 17, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of, of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. Things begin to settle down for a bit. So Antiochus decides that he wants to seal the victory. He actually historically wanted to recapture all of the Grecian Empire that was under Alexander the Great, but he never succeeded. So what Antiochus does is he wants to make peace with Egypt, with Ptolemy the V. And how does he do this? Well, it's back to the old marriage trick. Look, We've been fighting for years. Blood has been shed. It's a mess. It's like the Hatfields and McCoys. Let's, let's try the marriage thing again and be one big happy family. So Antiochus says, I got a beautiful daughter. You have a son. He was real young. He was only about eight, nine years old at that time. I'm going to send her to you down there in Egypt. She will wait for him to grow up. And Antiochus did this corruptedly. He, he really was wanting her to be in the palace to spy for, for daddy. And the woman's name is, maybe perhaps you've heard of her name, was Cleopatra. Now, it's not Cleopatra of Egypt, okay? So I want to make that clear. The queen of Egypt, Cleopatra, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, you know, Richard Burton. <laughs> That takes place historically about 50 years before the birth of Jesus. So this is Cleopatra uh, from Greece. She goes down to Egypt, waits for this young child to grow up, to marry him. And Antiochus thought great, but he didn't count on something happening. That little boy in the palace of, of Egypt, of Ptolemy, he grows up and he ends up being quite handsome. And Cleopatra falls in love with him. She really liked the guy. And she refuses to manipulate the situation and spying on the palace activities and says, I'm not going to spy for you, Dad. And Antiochus' plan backfires. 
So she stands by her husband. Well, Antiochus, he's all upset about that. And we continue reading in verse 18. And after this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So Antiochus says, forget you guys down there in Egypt. And he turns towards the coastlands. He goes towards the Greek island and says, I'm going to get you guys up there. But what he didn't know is this, that the Romans are beginning to come to power. Remember the legs of iron of Daniel chapter 2? That the belly of of brass, thighs of brass, the, the Grecian Empire, are going to be replaced by the legs of iron, the Roman Empire, that was a mighty empire, 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 excuse me. And we know that he um, sees that they're coming to rule, they're coming to strength, it's about 192 BC. So he couldn't vent his frustration on the Greeks. Verse 19 tells us, then he shall turn his face towards the fortress of his own land, and he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So he turns his back on his own land. He's really upset because his daughter didn't come through. The Romans stopped him up north. He goes to his own land and he plunders a temple in Elam that is dedicated to Jupiter. And he ends up dying there. So he's done for. And then verse 20, there shall rise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. So there's a problem that arose at this time. With all these military ventures that have uh, been taking place over the last couple hundred years, it's taken a tremendous toll militarily in Antiochus' family. So there, there was a huge deficit. So the next Antiochus, whatever number he is, he's actually Seleucus the fourth Philopater, He says, we've got to tax the whole empire. He had to pay Rome a thousand talents annually. And so he goes to Israel. He tries to take the gold and the silver that was, he heard, in the temple, according to a Jewish document that's called the Second Maccabean. Well, it didn't go well for him. He he didn't get out of the budget problem. Someone slipped him some poisoned mushrooms for dinner, and he goes down. He ends up dying. Now, all of this that we just went through is setting the stage for the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter is going to focus on now verses 21 through 35, the little horn of Daniel chapter 8. It's going to focus on that Syrian king that we've already talked about, Antiochus Epiphanes, a terrible, horrible king. And the reason that it focuses on him is because it's going to be pointing to, it's a... It's foreshadowing. It's going to speak of what is yet future that we're going to read about in verses 36 through 45 of the chapter next week. And that is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. That is the future leader that will come on the scene that he is called the Antichrist. And let's begin to look at that in verse 21. That in his place shall rise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. But he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And with the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant. So the year is 175 B.C. This vile one Antiochus Epiphanes, a great orator, by trickery and flattery he seduces the people to think that he's the rightful king. 
we're going to see that that's going to be mentioned, that the Antichrist is going to be a great orator. And he's going to come in with flattery. He's going to be one that the people are going to look at and say, wow, he really has the answers. Here, as we know that this one, this, this historical figure, Antiochus Epiphanes, he would overthrow the prince of the covenant, that is the high priest. It was a guy by the name of, of Onassis III. He gets rid of him, the Jewish high priest, and he puts in his own pseudo-priesthood in place. Again, the Antichrist, he will go and he will desecrate the temple, and he will also you know, try to, to, to change everything to where you don't believe in any God but me. He's going to proclaim himself as God, and we'll talk about that in detail next time. So as we look at this again, Antiochus, Epiphanes, that he points to, he's just um, uh, a foreshadow of what is to come, and that is the Antichrist that is yet future. So why do we go through all of this? Number one, I want you to remember this, that God's word is accurate. That every dot and tittle of God's word is going to be fulfilled. Don't let anyone come along and tell you, oh, the Lord's not going to come back. There's no rapture of the church. There's no tribulation period. There's no millennium reign of Christ. You know, it's not going to take place. We know that it is very clearly given to us, the timetable that there is going to be that the Lord will come in what is called the blessed hope, the rapture of the church. And then we know that there's that 70th week of Daniel that we talked about in chapter 9. The second coming of Jesus Christ, will he will establish his kingdom. Many verses that we see in the scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, whole chapters that talk about it. And heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus said that my words will never pass away. And every dot and tittle will be fulfilled. So as we read this, knowing that these first um, 35 verses uh, have historically happened in detail, we can be sure that what is yet future is going to happen as well. Amen? And that's what's so amazing about the Bible. The Bible is the only book that dares, that predicts the future in detail because there's one author, the one who knows the end from the beginning. And he gives us in details things that we know are going to come to pass so that you and I know that we got a glorious future. And the second thing is this. We see what happens when we don't have Jesus. Our lives doesn't have to be like a soap opera. And the Lord has brought us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He's brought us out of the weirdness and confusion and the evil you know, ways of the world to bring us into truth, into godly wisdom. And I pray that we would always be thankful for that and remember that. That we don't have to meander through this world trying to figure things out in, in the world's philosophy that is changing constantly. But we have the eternal word of God to guide us, to, to bring us truth, to give us true wisdom, that is godly wisdom. That this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I know that I've repeated that verse too many times, but that verse has impacted my life for so many years, that every commandment of the Lord is an expression of his love for you. And it's not to be burdensome, but it's to free you from this world. This world is going to end in a disastrous way. 
And the world's philosophy is changing. And the enemy is going to come and try to deceive you in every way that he can. But we have the word of God to guide us. Amen. And we know that it is true for our lives. And every commandment of the Lord is an expression of his love for you. Because he says to you and to me, I don't want you to get hurt. I I don't want you to be in bondage. Don't go after that worldly thing. Don't go after that sin and carnality. But to follow after him. To walk with him. To know him. And you will experience that abundant life that he has for you. Father, we thank you so much for these verses. I know there's a lot to go through this. A lot of history. But but Lord, there's a reason it's in your word. And it just... It just helps me to to know that your word is true. That these things are written. It was all future for Daniel. We look back and say, it came to pass, just as you said. And we know that what is yet future will come to pass. Every dot and tittle of it will be fulfilled. Even as John was told in the book of Revelation, write these things down that must come to pass. And they will. So, Lord, we know our ultimate Future. We know that the things that we see going on around us will culminate to a time where you're going to come for your church. There's going to be the establishment of your kingdom. And so, Lord, we are very grateful as we remember coming to the communion table, the provision that was given to us through Jesus coming, his suffering and death on the cross. Lord, as we come to the communion table, and the communion table is for the believers, it's not just if you belong to this church. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And we as believers come to the communion table, taking the elements, remembering this new covenant that we belong to, a covenant of of Jesus' body being broken and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin, a covenant that is based on your Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. It's it's no longer the law written on the tablets of stone, but the tablets of our hearts. To know you and to walk with you, provided through the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. And I pray that as the communion elements are handed out, that it wouldn't just be this mundane thing that we do once a month, but truly it would be time right now that you would say, thank you, Lord for the giving of your son, for the blessed hope, for the the eternal hope that I have in Christ. And this Labor Day weekend, to rejoice that Jesus, he did the work and make an atonement for our sins. So may we continue and just worship right now, just pondering and being at awe of the wonderful, glorious cross of Jesus Christ that delivers us from sin and death. In Jesus' name. The ushers are going to hand out the communion elements, and as most of you know, but in case you're new, that there's two tabs. There's one top one for the bread and then the second one for the cup. So you can prepare for communion. As the communion elements are handed out, we'll take a communion together.
Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he writes that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me as we take of the bread together. Father, we thank you for the giving of your son who willingly and freely went through the sufferings in a way that we can't possibly imagine, allowing his body to be beaten and flogged and a crown of thorns pounded on his scalp. They pulled out his beard, marred more than any other man, and he did it as the lamb that was led to the slaughter because of his love for us. So we're grateful for that. We remember what he did for us. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me as we take the cup together. Father, as we know that he was taken to a place that was called Golgotha in the Hebrew tongue called Calvary, the place of the skull, where he was pinned to a cross. And as he hung between heaven and earth, shedding his blood, it was so that we would have atonement for our sins and forgiveness. And then in that voice, he would cry out, it is finished. And on this Labor Day weekend, as we think about how we work hard, and so many here, that work hard for their families and for their kids in ministry and work in the land, whatever it might be, that we're grateful that Jesus, that he's done the work for us, for our eternal salvation, for forgiveness of sin, to have right relationship with you, that we just come in faith. We come to the cross. We come to the cross where you proved your love for us and sending your son. And Lord, I thank you that he conquered sin and death by rising from that tomb three days later. And now we have a living hope. So I pray that as we see the things going on around us, that we keep eternal perspective. And Lord, it's not to trouble us, but to comfort us, the cross and what's ahead for us. And Lord, I pray that we would share with others the things that, that we know to bring them hope and to bring them salvation through the gospel message. I thank you that we're here today. I pray you just bless our week coming up. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.